Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. Today's guest name is Jim Salzner. Jim and I have an awesome conversation and I really enjoyed the interview because he did so many things right and it allowed him to sell for a multiple of EBITDA that is really unheard of and put himself in a position with lots of options. Jim became an entrepreneur when he bought his business, RTD. After a little over a decade of becoming an engineer and working in marketing in the temperature control engage industry. And when Jim bought the business, he learned a lot. Then he had double digit growth for over 12 years before he eventually sold it to a very large company. And Jim walks us through all the different monumental milestones that helped him grow the value of the business, technical things that he did to do so, and then how it helped him with the exit and the dollar amount that he got afterwards. Jim's story really wraps together a lot of different philosophies from exit planning, value building, and the underlying benefits that preparation gives you on the eventual exit from your business. So without further ado, here's my interview with Jim. This episode of Life After Business is brought to you by Solidity Financial's Growth and Exit Planning. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the right buyer at the price you want. Morning, Jim. How are you doing? Good morning, Ryan. I'm doing well. I'm excited to have you on the show because you and I saw each other at uh, the Club Entrepreneur event, Club E in Minneapolis, and you were on a panel explaining your exit with a couple other gentlemen. And I give you lots of props for getting up there and being able to do that because it took us a while to kind of jump in and reflect. And I wanted to have you on the show because you got a really cool story that I wanted to dive into. So for our listeners, maybe just give us a backdrop on you know where you started your career and then where did you have that entrepreneur seizure that all of a sudden just made you decide to jump into the entrepreneurship world? Sure, sure, sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, and uh, um, I'm more than thrilled to, to tell my story. I, you know, it's interesting. My my career really started uh, at least my education. I went up to UMD, and I was going to be a uh, um, I was pre med, and uh, I spent four years up there getting my chemistry degree, and. Uh, in the fourth year, I realized that I wasn't going to get into medical school. And so uh, I decided to take a, a turn into engineering and ended up going to the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And then I got my engineering degree and uh, came back to Minneapolis and started working for a uh, connector manufacturer. And then from there, I, I started to realize that every, every job I had as I, I progressed, I always was in the, the uh, frame of mind that I could do it better. And so what I had decided at that point in time is, is that I would build a foundation and the foundation was going to be technology. And then I was going to build a foundation in business. And then at some point I was going to venture off on my own. And uh, that, 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 uh, that journey brought me to, uh, to Boston. And I ended up getting mentored with a, uh, a gentleman at, at GTE that was on the business side of GTE. And uh, he taught me the ropes on the business end. And so then when I decided to come back to Minneapolis, which, which uh, I was originally from, I ended up going to a company called Rosemont, which turned into Emerson. 
and got into the pressure and temperature business and spent about five years there. And uh, you were in engineering the, the whole time doing this, right? I was. Well, I was in engineering. I was in engineering and slash uh, project management during this period of time. And uh, learned, learned, learned the engineering part of it, which was the technology, which, which to me meant manufacturing, meant uh, vendor approval, meant uh, processes, SOPs, learning drawings. And at the time, they were CAD drawings. So I really, really spent about the first, oh, I'd say, 10 years of my career really building the technology foundation of my, uh, of, of, of my experience. And uh, about third year into uh, working at, at Rosemont, I, I was running an engineering group there. And I decided that I was the oldest one in the group. And I said, you know, where do old engineers go? And at the time, I was maybe 33 years old. And uh, everyone in my group was somewhat younger than I was. And I, I looked around. And, and uh, sure enough, older guys like me at the time got into, uh, into marketing. And so I made my way into a marketing role at Rosemont and spent about a year and a half doing that. And then, uh, you know, and I got to know that between, between the engineering part of that business and, and then the, the marketing side of that business, I got to know the pressure and temperature business, you know, quite well from all aspects of it, um, from manufacturing to marketing. And then I started getting involved with, uh, with customers. And in the fifth year at Rosemont, I, I, I looked around again and I said, well, where do old marketing people go? Well, sure enough, they get into sales. <laughs> and so I, I, I decided that, that that would be my next, next stop. And uh, I started to look around. And at the time, of course, there was no internet and there were just recruiters. And so I uh, contacted a recruiter and told him what I was looking for. And uh, he ended up placing me in a, in a small, uh, family business and that was specific in temperature and uh they were kind enough to to give me a crack and and they hired me and for the next five years i learned the sales side of 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 technology and uh, during that time i i i uh i was able to to double that business and uh in that in that period of time i i, I said well clearly the, the next step is getting my own business and so uh, I stepped aside from that, that business, and uh, a year later, I had purchased my company, which was the RTD company that was up in uh, Cambridge, Minnesota at the time. We were, it was another, it was a family-run business, probably two, less than two and a half million in sales. And uh, I got them to, uh, to eventually sell me the business. And uh, it was it was a it was a process to learn that because I had never bought a business. I, the, the biggest thing I ever bought was a house, and uh, I, I I learned the ins and outs of working with the banks, and and with a, with family family run businesses at the, uh, as RTD was, and uh, and I took it from there. That was it. That was in in the middle of uh, it was June of two thousand one. I purchased that business. So you, what 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 I love about your story is because you bought a business and then so you learned so much through that process and then you ended up exiting your your RTD company that you ended up growing. So I, there's I want to focus maybe more on the end part of it as you because sure. of all the things you learned. But I think we want I do want to tackle on how you went through the purchase process of this because. 
there's what did what were some of the things that you learned as you said you had only bought a you know a house at that this point but can you just what is what was the process how did you kind of structure the deal and what did the transition look like as you were going in there you know i tell you i i uh i had a neighbor at the time that that uh was was general manager of one of the big cargill divisions and cargill you know was growing their business through acquisitions and he gave me a piece of advice that i used when i purchase this business. And he said, whatever you do, get the longest terms you can to buy that business, which meant, you know, don't put all the money down at once. Don't borrow all the money at once. And what really came down to is, is, you know, I ended up buying this business with no money down. I borrowed a third of the purchase price from the bank and I got the, the seller to self-finance the other two thirds at a 5% interest rate over a 15 year timetable. And <laughs> good negotiation. <laughs> I I did not realize how valuable that was because at the end of the day the, the the thing that everybody will tell you when they own a business and they run a business big or small it's cash flow. And mm -hmm. uh that cash that, that 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 was one of the biggest debts we had obviously going into the business. And uh we were able to to, to cash flow it with 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 with, uh, with good revenue coming in, and uh, and and not into eat into our cash because we were way undercapitalized, but uh, we overcame that by by bringing in revenue and, and minimizing our uh, our output. So when you were doing that, obviously because you're a buyer, and this will get, I'm sure we'll flush out later in your story, but when you're doing that. Did you ever once think how you didn't want to be them with that terming, with those terms? Like you literally wanted the opposite? Well, I, 100%. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, I, I would never have, I would never have uh, done that. Yourself. I, I, I certainly, no, I certainly wouldn't have sold my, my company in that, uh, in that realm. But, you know, the, the person I bought it from was up in, was up in, you know, a bit north of, of the Twin Cities, which is roughly 50 miles north. And, you know, the question that I asked him is, is if, if you don't sell it to me, what's your exit strategy? I mean, how are you going to get out of this business? Who is going to buy this business at this price? I, I was able to give him a, a, a little bit of a premium in buying the business because of the terms and because I knew the industry. And by knowing the industry, I, I knew I could, could grow that business quickly. And make up for any of the uh, deficits I I I, uh, I had inherited, which which was undercapitalizing, which was the first one. So you're, I mean, I think that's there's a lot of different ways we could go with that because I, I think it is important because he didn't have options from a lot of things that he didn't do correctly. And were you were you able to see some of the things that pigeonholed him to the situation that he was in, selling it to you? I, I, I did. And, 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 you know, as I had worked for a family business prior to this, family businesses don't always have exit strategies that include outside family members. And, uh, and the other thing family businesses are a deficit at is, uh, is accessing, you know, advisors outside of their business that, uh, that, that they have met through other through other acquaintances as I have, like, you know, obviously working at Emerson and, and working at GTE and, and, and so forth and, and learning the, the ropes through big company ways. And, uh, 
you get very insulated when you're in a small business. You get even further insulated when you're in a small family business, when you have family members associated to that business. So you rely very heavily on, on, on people that you can advise with on the outside, but you're also limited to access to them other than uh, a recommendation and so forth. You know, I had just the opposite. I had access to those people through relationships. And uh, that's a big, big, and experience, which made a, you know, those two things were a big difference between myself and, uh, and a family-run business. So what were they, which I think is interesting, I can't remember if it was at the panel where you had said something, or no, I was on a phone call where, because you bought a business, I don't know, correct me if, if I get this wrong, but it was the difference between a business owner and an entrepreneur, is that how you phrased it? No, I actually phrased it, the difference between a founder mm, yep. and an entrepreneur is strikingly different. Founders are, 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 you know, just beat to a different drum. Uh, founders are, are very creative. They're very focused. And they believe that, uh, you know, everything revolves around their world and their product. And entrepreneurs are ones who can come into a business and their focus is on growth. And, and, and they, there's, there's a disconnect somehow between a founder and an entrepreneur when it, it comes to uh, how to grow the business. And how, how, how to grow the business in, in just different ways. And, and my philosophy as an entrepreneur, um, as I come from a large companies before, is, uh, you know, heavy on the sales and the marketing side of the business. So I, founders don't have that same, they, 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 may, they may think they do, but until they've experienced it at a, at a large company level, they get, they, they get a bit short-sighted. So how did you implement that? So like now that you, the, the, let's say that you, you know, you've gone and you bought RTD, what were, did you have a plan? Did you buckle down? What were some of the first things that you did to address and hit this growth strategy that you knew you wanted to do because you had the vision from being at a bigger company? And then how did you implement it? It's a great question. And uh, I tell you, it's, it's, it's great to look back 15 years ago and say, how, how, how did we get there? And uh, you know, it was it was it was a couple of things. One, you know, I knew you know I came out of the temperature business, so I knew where some of the uh, golden eggs were, and I knew that my relationship had the ability to bring them over to us. So I I rapidly transitioned them to our business. The second one was small businesses are are minimized in their marketing capabilities. And uh, marketing to me really were the tools for salespeople. And since I was going to be the key sales guy at RTD Company, um, the first thing I did was I took a look at uh, the existing, you know, at the time, even 15, 16 years ago, the internet wasn't quite what it is today, not even close. So marketing literature was really, really important. And, and that was, and, and the importance of it was, is that was the, the uh, uh, first impression you left with the customer. And uh, the catalog that I had inherited was a six by four, 20 page catalog that, uh, that was black and white and had you know, pretty fundamental drawings and, 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 and uh, schemes in there to, to present to the customer. Well, that wasn't, gonna, that wasn't gonna come close to what we needed to have done. And so one of the things I did is, I went out and we got all our competitor catalogs and, and certainly the competitors that were far bigger than us and put them on a table 
We hired a CAD guy to spend the next 12 months putting together our catalog. And uh, we ended up with a 200-page, 8 by 10 glossy catalog that 90% of the contents were things we never made before. But <laughs> How did that was, freak out was, your employees that, that, that you were not? <laughs> it was a very calculated risk, to say the least. It, 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 it didn't sit well. <laughs> but I had enough confidence in our in our folks, and and you know I I had I had two partners that that really did a good job, and 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 one of them was on the operation side, and one of them was on the engineering side, and between the two of them, I knew we could get the products that we needed out the door, and uh, I knew I could sell ahead of them, and get 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 what we needed to our customer, and sure enough, we did. It was. Uh, to say to say that I created chaos would probably put light on it. <laughs> but but what we did do is we started seeing double digit growth very very quickly, and we were be, we were able to to keep up with that growth and sustain that growth and get us ahead of our uh, of our of our capital needs and and uh, and make us very very cash positive within the first year. So very. Let's peel that apart because I, I I think I'm probably more in the spectrum of where I would do what you did, which is sell the unknown and then figure it out. And I do know that it takes a special blend of people to actually make that executable. But you know, as you're doing this, one of the you know question, couple of questions I've got is, what was your goal? Was it a financial goal? Was it just to become cash positive? Because I think you know a lot of entrepreneurs get stuck in this growth for growth's sake, you know, just to beat your rivals or to show that you can do it just as well as you know Emerson could do it. But you know, how did you judge yourself, and what were some of the benchmarks that al- that allowed you to get the feedback of how well you were doing? Yeah, that's a that, that's a that's a great question to reflect back on. And uh, you know, my, my my goals were were very self uh, self imposed, and uh, you know, I felt if we weren't double digit growing, we were going to go backwards. And, and by that, I meant is that if you aren't bringing on new customers that land in your top 10, you know, you have to be in the frame of mind, you're going to lose one or two customers in that top 10. So I knew I had to, 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 to keep that pace up. I didn't necessarily have an ultimate goal or a ultimate revenue, re- revenue mark for us. I just knew that each year we would approach it with a ten, a minimum of ten percent growth, and uh, and we would and we would continue to be cash positive and profitable, and continue to grow by volume and and, and by the types of work we uh, ended up ultimately getting. And so we we did that for for almost twelve years, other than oh eight oh nine. Was there any major ripple effects for that for you guys? It wasn't. And it, it's it's very interesting. Um, one of the things, one of the philosophies I had, and, and I held it very close to close to myself, and that was that uh, you know we were we were going to bank, we we were going to have a steady uh, stream of cash, so we would self fund ourselves. And uh, from the very very beginning, oh, I think one of the things business business owners that I have met along the way, once they see a, a steady stream of cash, they pull it out. And they bonus themselves out. I, I I didn't do that, and I didn't do that, and, and 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 when I did it, I did it pretty conservatively over the first five years, and and, and continued that philosophy moving forward. And I, I held a strong cash basis in the business. So when 08, 09 hit, 
instead of divesting in the business, I reinvested in the business. And we shot out in uh, by the middle of 09 because we were putting money back into the business because we had it. That also gave us the ability to never, never dip into our uh, credit line. And we never did from the beginning to the end. That's that's amazing. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of entrepreneurs that can't say the same. Uh, as you're, you know, I'm, I'm curious, Jim, because, you know, with this growth strategy that you have, did you, because you had an idea of the value of the business because you bought it, right? You had a baseline for when you bought the business, you know, as you're doing these things, did you ever, you know, cause I, the reason I'm asking this is I think a lot of entrepreneurs get stuck with the annual returns other than just overall value of the business, because what you were doing, I mean, whether you knew it or not, what the cash flow you're making your, your business that much more valuable, you know, how did you track that? Did you track that? And how did you? I did. Okay. And what were some of the methodologies I, I, that you did in order to kind of keep that that baseline? Well, what we did is is uh, and this was you know I had uh, um, I was fortunate enough to have uh, two outside advisors. One we uh, would have in on a six month basis that really came from an operations frame of mind, and then the other one uh, was uh, uh, another advisor that had more of an accounting frame of mind, and. Uh, it was that advisor that really gave me a, a key metric that I would keep, and that would be uh, what I would call my Tuesday numbers. And my Tuesday numbers was, was really the ultimate goal of Tuesday numbers was what did I really have cash on hand every Tuesday of every month? And uh, I, I would watch that metric, and it would include you know our, our accounts payable, our accounts receivable, cash on hand, and uh, those three numbers really gave me a, a, uh, a metric to the health of the business at that point in time. And uh, I would watch that cash on hand increase or decrease. And uh, we would, we, the other thing we did, which I didn't realize this at the time, but really appreciated later on, is you know, we had, to the best of our ability, you know, we had 30-day terms with our customers and 60 day terms with our suppliers. Oh, so beautiful. We could balance we could balance that cash coming in and what that also enabled us to do was to grow the business on our own cash rather than dipping into the credit line and give us the metrics of what we owed, what we had coming in and what we had on hand and uh, those were wonderful metrics certainly starting out and uh, became very very valuable as the business grew and and, 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 you know, then you really got a sense of uh, what this business cash flowed and, and what the value of it was. Did you, you know, those, I love those 30 day terms and 60 day terms. That's just beautiful. What, did you implement that? Was it already there? And then you realized how good it was, you know, where and how did that, that, um, system come to be? We brought, we, we brought it. And, and again, we, you know, the, the, the thing that we did and, and, and again, most of the people that, that we brought in came in from, you know, again, came in from our, 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 our past history, which was, uh, uh, which was Rosemont and, 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 our, and our largest competitor. And so the combination of those people coming in from larger companies brought in those types of corporate metrics that uh, the original RTD company didn't have. And they didn't have access to those types of uh, to type type of people and, and, and type of processes. We did. Did you have any, so curious on the employee size as you kind of went through maybe at the beginning, the middle and the end, and then 
so we can have some benchmarks. And then did you have any issues sure. bringing in the big box employees and having them being in the small business? Uh, you know, we, we, we didn't because we, we were a small business run like a, a big business. And uh, so, so that hump was, you know, although we, we were a small business and, you know, we had the ability to, to maneuver and, and, and to, to do things that, that, you know, that, that were, uh, you know, that, 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 yeah. that were nimble. That, that gave us the ability to be flexible, um, gave us, you know, we didn't have to follow a hiring criteria. One of the philosophies I had and, and uh, as well as my other partners were that, you know, if somebody good came available that we knew along the way, that even if we didn't need them at the time, we would still bring them in and, uh, you know, we would grow into, in, into them. And, and sure enough, we did. So we, we really, really stopped looking like a small company within the first year. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, that helped us grow. Well, and, and it, curious, because I, 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 it took us a long, you know, at our old business, it took us a long time to figure that out. And because you're hiring up, but then that elevates your entire operations. And you've already given a couple of ridiculously good examples to prove that, you know, as because you're ma- measuring your Tuesday's numbers and you're able to. How do you, you know, tracking the investments of these people? Cause they, I think there's this assumption of, well, I don't want to pay the money because it comes out of my pocket for these kind of people. You know, how did you weigh the value of hiring these people versus, you know, how it affects your cash flow and your, and what you're dealing with on a, on a day-to-day basis? That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. And again, I, I didn't realize the value of it until we get, certainly got further into the business and more experience. And what I would typically do is I would hire these people at, equal or less of what they were making in the past. And, but what we did is we did profit share and profit sharing was really related to the health of the company at the end of the year. And uh, on, on occasion, we did it twice a year. And so anything they lost by coming in, if we continued to be profitable, they gained in profit sharing. And uh, we did that. We, we did that within the first six months of owning the business just to show that we were we were serious about the philosophy of sharing the profits and uh you know what that did is it got everybody it, it got everybody engaged and everybody knew that if they worked hard the company grew and they gave it that extra effort they would see that in a, in a 6 to 12 month window in spades and uh how did each you, and every year we gave them more and more money how did you structure that uh, just i mean how did you determine what the baseline was for the company and then what you're willing to divvy up and then how did you end up like divvying it up it, it, it was it was it was a base based on uh, what EBITDA ended up being so after taxes we would see what our our profit numbers were and we would give a percentage of that back to the employees and that was our reinvestment into the employees and uh, each year we we increased that percentage by point or you know, a couple tenths of a point. So each year people saw that, uh, that we were growing and much of it we shared with our employees. We, we were a very, very transparent company. I, uh, I, I, I had no problem sharing those numbers on a monthly basis with our, our, uh, our employees, which is what I did. We would, we would share where we were at every month, whether we were up or down and people really got a sense of the direction we were going. So there was nothing, uh, there wasn't, there wasn't anything hidden. You've done, I mean, so there's, you know, there's the, the, the open book management philosophy now. I mean, I'm just curious, Jim, did you get a lot of the, cause you've, I mean, you've got a lot of really, really good practices that you've applied 
Was there, uh, other than some of these advisors, were there books, resources, people, or was it just the fact that you worked at the big company? How did, you know, where did you bounce and get these ideas? You know, it was, it was really, you know, it was, it, it came internal. You know, one of the things that, that, that you know, I, I, I realized early on is, is that when I, when I was looking to buy this business, I knew I couldn't do it alone. And so I brought in two minority partners. And, you know, between the three of us, we had enough insight to figure out what the right things were to do to, to treat employees with. And, and certainly, you know, everyone values their, their paychecks. And, and there's nothing more valuable than people working hard and rewarding them for it. And the three of us had that same philosophy. And so, you know, a lot of it came from just the three of us discussing it. And we didn't always agree, but we always, uh, I believe we always ended up doing the, the right thing. The others was, you know, I, I had stayed in touch with enough people outside of our doors to not be insulated. And I would pick their brains on, on, uh, on different venues and different activities. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, one of the advices I got, and, I, and I'll never forget it to this day, and this was one of our, one of our solid advisors on the outside, was that when you have uh, functions, make sure they're memorable. And so we would have, you know, great Christmas parties. We would have, uh, you know, our, our, our monthly meetings were, 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 were intended to be knowledgeable, but interactive. So we would do things. Uh, one, one thing that I'll never forget as well is, is in 08, 09, when we hit that, that deep recession, instead of spending um, significant dollars on, uh, on Christmas parties, I, we chose to do an in-house lunch party. And instead of funding a Christmas party, we brought in people from the food shelf and gave them the check that we would have used for, uh, for, for a Christmas party. And, and those are the things that went a long ways. And, and, and that, those ideas came from, from different folks. And we would have, uh, internally, we had what we called fund committees, that they would plan these events and those ideas would come out of that. So really was, a, you know, at the end of the day, it was a team effort. And it was a, it was a, a, a combination of outside resources and inside resources and, 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 and people's thoughts and ideas. It, it's so fun, isn't it? And, and this is it, the question I've got for you, Jim, is because I love everything you just said is, was a lot of our philosophies too. Did you, you know, you're, you're working in this and you're building this life of all these, you know, friends, family, you're building this culture that is ingrained into your personality and is a reflection of who you are. Did you still continue to think about when and how the business was going to transition to someone else? Or were you living in the moment of how much fun you were having with all this stuff? Because the question that I've got on, on top of that is, you know, where and how did the triggering event happen for you to sell? Because it sounds like you were having a blast. I can just hear it in the passion while you're talking about it. You know, what was the identity difference between you and the business? And then how did all of a sudden the triggering event happen? You know, it's that, 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 that is, that's a, that's an appropriate question. And, and, and the answer to that is, is, you know, I had always known that this wasn't going to be a family business. So there was not going to be a transition for myself to my, to my daughters. It, it, it had the opportunity of transitioning for myself to my partners, but we kept, we, we always, at least I always kept my options open. And, uh, you know, my timetable came faster than I had anticipated. And, and that, and that being said was, um, 
you know, I always, I was, I was trying to learn and, and talk to people of how one goes about selling a business. And, and I got to know some private equity people and they, they certainly lent me their, uh, their ear. I, I got to know people who had sold their business and I listened to what they had to say. So I always had my ears open of what that next step would be. But what ultimately happened was that uh, one of the, the other things that we brought to this business is we believe that, uh, um, you know, creating a, a patent portfolio of our technology was really, really important, protecting what we did and giving more value to the company. What, what ended up happening is, is one of our sensors that we used in the, in the uh, medical catheter business became infringed on. And that infringer was, was starting to take some of our business away. But rather than starting litigation against him, I decided to meet with them and see where they were at, made sure that they understood what that next step would be. And that conversation turned into a, uh, uh, you know, well, rather than get into litigation, would you ever consider selling the business? And uh, at the end of the day, uh, they, they offered a price that I couldn't turn down. And coincidentally, at the same time, I was working with a private equity firm to look at a a, a mutual acquisition we could make to grow our business and to broaden our product offering. And uh, when they found out that I was looking to, uh, to, 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 to sell the business, they started making offers as well. So I played the two of them against one another and uh, I, I, I leveraged it and got a multiple and the timing couldn't have been any better at the time. And so I ended up selling it in, uh, in 2012. What was the time frame from the patent infringement and working with the PE to the eventual sale and the actual signing of the documents? Six months. Wow. Yeah. Six months. I, I never would have anticipated. Typically, you know, even if you're outright selling your company, it's not going to go that quickly. Right. <laughs> right. So what, what, what are some of the things that, you know, as you're going through the, you know, bouncing the two buyers back and forth, how did, how did you navigate those waters i mean we were using advisors how did you how did you gracefully play the field like you should have you know i i i, I did two things the first thing one of the things i did is i had both uh, bidders come in and, and sit down with our outside attorneys my uh and my two partners and listen to their their uh their offer and they made their their, their presentation and and uh you know coincidentally they both made a they, they both upped their offer and so, uh, you know, we, we continued down that path for maybe, maybe two to four weeks. But then the other thing I did is I also had, I was also able to tap into my outside advisors of, of what was the best um, path, as well as our outside accountants of what was the best, uh, you know, financial, financial uh, benefit to all of us um, and which path to take. And so. Uh, um, well, and that, that, that's interesting because I. I what you have here is a very unique set of circumstances because, you know, you've got a, a PE firm that is very financially driven. So they're probably looking at discounted cash flow, multiples of EBITDA, growth projections of the, the roll up or whatever it is that you guys are going to do. And now then you've got someone that needs your patent. So two different completely methods of valuing what it is that you have. So how did you deal with the financial situation of how they were valuing the business? Maybe let's start with that one, and then I've got a follow-up question. 
Sure. Well, they 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 they, they both valued the business within five percent of one another. I oh, mean, wow. that was the, the, their ultimate bid was about. Well, you know, I, I, again, we we leveraged one against the other. So they mm-hmm. they can, once they they got to a certain point, which you know, we just never, you know, we we never thought we would get that kind of multiple. And uh, <laughs> once they got to that multiple, the the, the P the, the private equity deal. You know, actually, was a was a few points or a few percentage. It's probably a few percentage points higher, but the deal structure was a little bit different, and the strategic buyer was was going to be, you know, all cash, all upfront, and had the ability and had the desire to 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 grow the business and knew the market, and so at the end of the day, we took less, but we took less for a higher security, you know, for us. And for the employees, and that the, the the lesser amount was more appealing because the the, the uh, you know the the company would be kept intact and wouldn't be resold again, like a PE company would. So, so how did you how did you get? I think that I think you hit on a couple huge things here because the deal structure I think is so ambiguous to people that have never gone through the sale because. It's the wild, wild west. I mean, it's complete negotiation on how you structure a deal. And you've got two different buyers that have different types of organizations. How did you get to the deal structure? And then how how did you get to your objectives on what was important to you, like keeping the employees and all that kind of stuff? What kind of questions did you ask them to derive to those, to to, to derive to your understanding of what it is that that was actually going to happen? Well, I mean, one of the things I, I wanted to make sure on, well, s- certainly with the strategic buyer, which was, you know, they, they were a $500 million buyer. And, uh, you know, they a sector of their business, about a third of their sector was temperature. And so their intention was to, you know, to do temperature company acquisitions. And we were one of them. And uh, one of the things that came out in those discussions is is that uh, uh, we would be their, their uh we we would be the company site for temperature. So if anything moved, things would move to us, not mm-hmm. we move to them. And and that was really important because mm-hmm. one of the things I recognized as well as my partners did as well, and that is that uh, you know keeping the company intact in Minneapolis and keeping our employees employed through this transition, not not just through the transition, but for their future, was very important to us mm-hmm. because we we believed that our growth. And our success really had a lot to do with these folks. So, you know, the decision became easier and easier the more we thought through that. A PE company, you know, would would buy it for five years, sell it, and then you don't know what would happen. So there's a lot of ambiguity out there. And Mm -hmm. uh, it just it didn't it didn't feel right for our company and for the industry we were in. And ultimately, we ended up going with us with a. uh, with a lesser price, with a strategic buyer, and uh, it was it was you know, a lesser it, price, but you said it was all cash up front, right? So, versus the PE firm, were they doing like a leverage buyout, or are they you know loading it with debt? With like, how was it like the payment terms on each of the two? Well, the payment terms were were, were slightly different, although the PE firm was ready to do all cash as they they realized it was going to be very competitive. But but the problem with the PE firm is they didn't have you know, the, the, the leverage that the $500 million firm had mm-hmm. in the sense that, uh, you know, they didn't know the industry. They couldn't put, you know, they, they, they couldn't put the same kind of cash 
back into the business if we hit a downturn mm -hmm. that the uh, the strategic buyer could. So as you're, I mean, you've, you've, you've thought a lot about the employees, the, the, the legacy of the business, as you're going through this in your mind, where did your role fit and where did you want to play a part in the, the future of the business once the deal went down? Well, you know, I, you know, I, I, I you know, at the time I was, uh, I was 54 years old or 53 years old. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to stay on. So in each case, I, I, I negotiated a, an, a, an employment contract of four years for myself. And, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't really understand what that role would be. What I ended up finding out is that I, uh, my four year work contract while it was paid out should have been a six month contract with three and a half years paid out because you know, all you do once you sell your business is you can, the best you can do is provide continuity. And the reality is, is that's all they really want. They want continuity. And, you know, you, you have an obligation to give that continuity to your employees, to your customers and to your suppliers. And uh, I ended up staying a year and a half, which as I said, was probably a year too long. And, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, I was not in any decision-making capacity at that. The minute I sold it, I lost my decision capacity. And uh, how did you? Was, was it different or or close to what you thought that was going to be like? Very, very. I, I you know, I the, the last time I was able to make those kind of decisions that they gave me power to was when I was sixteen. <laughs> um, they, I, I had none. I mean, I had to have everything, everything, everything authorized and. Uh, you know, from buying a pencil to, uh, to taking a day of vacation. And, and I hadn't been in that, 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 uh, that kind of a relationship in a very, very long time. So it, it was very stomachache thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, uh, it, 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 it gave me one too, but, uh, um, so what, you know, other than the decision-making, well, the decision-making ripples into it. And I, I want to kind of go back to when you were talking about all the very unique things that you did from like your events and how you were, I mean, the chief culture officer was what a lot of entrepreneurs are, you know, how did you emotionally deal with the fact that they were now driving the culture of your business? And like, how did you process that? I, I, I didn't deal with it well at all. I, uh, it was really the hardest, the hardest year of, uh, of working I had because I had to stay on. I didn't enjoy doing what I did any longer. And so I, 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 I had to think of what that exit, that, that ultimate exit would be for me. And so, uh, you know, I finally um, came to terms with them of, of an exit, which, as I said, was a year and a half later and, uh, um, and moved on. Um, I, 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 it was, it was not a, it was not a, uh, um, it was not a productive year for me to say the least. So, you know, how did you, cause I, I went through the same thing. It was not as long as you were, but you know, how did you d stay positive with your employees and all the people that you were supposed to provide, provide continuity to, did you, you know, kind of distance yourself or like, how did you actually tactically deal with that? Where you can't make the decisions, but everybody's going to you, you want to, and you're, you're dealing with this internal conflict. Well, you know, you, you know, the employees are pretty smart people and, uh, it was, you know, they, they caught on and, uh, the strategic buyer, you know, had a contract with me, felt they had to keep it, but the employees started to realize that, uh, you know, they had to, to go to the fallback people and, and slowly started to do that. So the transition 
transition from from having responsibility to none, you know, became very evident to our employees and uh, maybe less evident to our strategic buyer, which, uh, as I said, we ultimately parted ways. So as you're kind of working through your exit, as you had said, you know, there's a lot of technical stuff that you got to get figured out with your employment contract and stuff like that. But where was your head at and what were your, you know, were you planning your next journey of what you were going to be doing next? Or were you just trying to get the immediate stuff accomplished? And, you know, you know, cause it's been a few years. So what can you kind of transition into the, how did you transition into a life afterwards? You know, it's, you know, what I did is, is, uh, you know, after I'd left, I, I'd taken some, some time off to do the things around my, my house that I'd been meaning to do. And, and so I did that for a few months, but then I reverted back to what I really, really enjoyed and, 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 uh, and thought I did pretty well at, and that was reconnecting with as many people as I could and, uh, seeing what they were up to and seeing what kind of opportunities lie ahead for myself. And, those included anything from buying another business to advising businesses to being on boards of businesses. And uh, it, it didn't take me long to, to uh, engage in all three of those as, as you know, I quickly realized that, that, that I had a lot to offer still, and I still had a lot of energy in me. And so I explored all three of those avenues. And uh, how did you make your decisions on like what you wanted to do? Was it who you want to spend your time with, financial rewards, was there causes, you know, or did you just kind of, you know, go with the flow? I mean, how did you make, what was the decision-making criteria? Well, it was mostly, it was, you know, it's interesting, you know, I, you know, since I, since I, since I uh, was fortunate enough to sell the business at, at, at the price we did, I, I wasn't looking for financial rewards any longer. Although, you know, I still, still was in the mind frame, it, it's good to make money. Um, but the, the, the financial criteria wasn't wasn't uh, wasn't the driving force. What really was the driving force was would I enjoy it? Would I enjoy working with these people? Is it you know is it isn't it part of uh, technology that I that I'm interested in? And uh, you know, sure enough, I I, I, I was able to uh, get involved in all three of those different things, and so. I, I did that, and, and I did it without any any financial pursuit. And some of it was was volunteering my time. Uh, much of it was with at, at certainly at no pay. And uh, I eventually ran into a business that I, I just exited out of a couple weeks ago. That I was the uh, ended up being the interim president for uh, for about ten months. So you know, I, I think exploring that is it's kind of a new journey. And you know, one of the things that I've seen people struggle with or we've had you know conversations about is how do you now gauge yourself and how do you now like have a do have you had a new life vision about what's important because you know you no longer have tuesday's numbers to see how well you're doing and grow in double digit growth so there has to be this new intrinsic way in how you value and measure yourself i mean have you found a new system that's worked for you is there still a process that you're going through for that oh i i i you know i as I said, as I said, you know, I still have enough energy in me and, and, and uh, desire to uh, to do this again. But I, I don't gauge myself against that. I, I really, really gauge myself with the ability to to connect with the right people, finding the right thing, and I enjoy it enough that there is no financial financial pursuit is not the number one criteria. 
it really has come down to just doing what I what I've enjoyed best, and that's getting out there and meeting people, finding finding what makes those people tick, and seeing if I have the ability to uh, to help them as 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 people had helped me. So some of it is is gauged on on the ability to give back. The other one is gauged on uh, interest, and uh, the the last one would certainly be a, a financial criteria to it. And uh, you know, I I don't know if I'm comfortable with it as much as I should be, but uh, you know, it, it's you know at least part of it. I, I still enjoy. I, I enjoy. I enjoy doing all those three things. So that's awesome. I, I love it. So as we're wrapping up here, what is the you know where are you at today, and what is the best place for our listeners to get in touch with you? Uh, well, they they can uh, as I as I they're welcome to to certainly email me at uh, at solsner at gmail dot com and uh, they can they can start with my email address. I, I I don't have a I'm not on Facebook, but I am on LinkedIn, so they can certainly uh, access me through LinkedIn, and I would love to to hear from those. I'm I'm happy to help. Jim, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're very welcome. Thanks, Rod. So I hope you enjoyed the interview with Jim. He had a ton of good information there. He did a lot of things right. And I want to highlight three of the main takeaways that I had. Uh, the first one was how he went about buying the business really shows what it's like from the buyer's perspective, because Jim was able to be a buyer, but then also the seller throughout his entire journey and how he words it when he said that you need to take as long as you possibly can to buy the business. And he had a mentor tell him that shows you that that is the buyer's mentality, which is push all of the risk onto the seller. So if you're the seller, knowing that this is the case, how can you build the value and how can you mitigate that? And the fact that Jim was able to actually do that and push all of the payment terms over time shows you that the person he bought it from didn't do a lot of things to grow the value and de-risk it because Jim was able to look at him and say, if you don't sell it to me, what's your exit strategy? So the person he bought it from didn't have options and had to carry all the risk because he didn't do the right things. That shows that Jim, when he walked into his business, knew exactly what he needed to do to not be in that position when and how he exited. So he had a lot of key metrics that he measured and the three that I really loved, which is he called his Tuesday's numbers, which is measuring AP, AR, and cash. And it's just really measuring the vitals and the health of the business. But aside from just those key metrics, he did value building techniques that were extremely beneficial for him throughout his exit because he had a profit sharing with his key executives. He was uh, really specific with his AP and AR, making sure that he could use his own float to fund the business instead of becoming the bank like most of our customers and suppliers want us to become. And then he had a ton of patents that allowed him to have a leg up and have extreme value besides just the profit of the business. And then his ridiculous growth that he had year over year All of those reasons gave the buyer the confidence to give him the multiple that he wanted and to put all and most of the cash up front. So tons of great takeaways from this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and until next week. 